Are you ready for this? You've got mail. There's no action in that movie at all. Or how about this one? Anne of Green Gables. You've seen that movie? Anne of Green Gables. I have to confess to you, I love that movie. And there's no action in it at all. Okay, Sound of Music. I, I do like that one. I really do. And again, there's no action movies unless you call singing action. Okay? No action movies at all. And then, of course, I have, this is a hard one to admit, mm. I have come to thoroughly enjoy Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Now, I have to confess to you, I lean more towards the three-hour version than the 23-hour version or however long it is. <laughs> I have to confess that. I'm learning. I'm growing. But I do enjoy now the dialogue scenes. They're not boring to me anymore. <laughs> However, I will also have to confess, I have never seen in full length the movie Gone with the Wind. I'm not sure I ever will. But... I just wanted you to know that. I do, however, enjoy the dialogue scenes. Where am I going with these? See, some of us, we enjoy the action scenes, and some of us, we really enjoy the dialogue scenes. Now, for illustration's sake, I want you to imagine that movies are like the Bible. Some of us, we love the action scenes, okay? And those are like the biblical principles of how to live. And some of us, you know, they just want a pastor, just tell me how to live. Don't get into all that theology stuff. I just want you to tell me how to live for Jesus, okay? I could care less about the details. And others, man, they, they want to know the details. And they come up to me afterwards, and, and I, I happen to preach a sermon that tended to be very theological, and they'll come up, to, and I'm wondering, wow, did I even connect with that one? They'll come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, that was like the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. <laughs> and there's just some of us, and we love, the, we love the dialogue, the theological, if you will. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible has both. The Bible has dialogue and action. The Bible has theological and very practical, very practical principles of living. Uh, Jesus, he, he got into the theological. He started talking in John 6. He says, no one comes to the, the son unless the father draws him. And we have constructed what, what people have called prevenient grace, the grace of God that's active in the sinner's life that brings them to this place of faith in Christ. Jesus, however, addressed, especially in like the Sermon on the Mount, he was such a practical preacher, and he told the people how to live. And he was not afraid of this word, repent, you switch now over to Paul. Paul, he loves to get into the theological. He loves the dialogue scenes, okay? But can you imagine what life would be without the dialogue scenes in movies? For example, you are watching The Return of the Jedi, and you're just skip, skipping from action scene to action scene to action scene, and you get to the last action scene in which there's Darth Vader, there's the Emperor, and there's Luke. And there's and, and the emperor is doing his electrical whatever thing and, and electrocuting Luke. And Luke is kind of shriveling up and says, help, and he's dying apparently. And you're wondering at this moment, is all hope gone? Is the emperor going to rule the universe with no opposition? 
And suddenly Darth Vader's looking back, back from Luke to the Emperor, and he walks over to the Emperor and he picks, spoiler alert, picks him up and throws him down this bottomless shaft and the Emperor is destroyed. Now, if all you saw was the action scene, you would be wondering, why did he do that? I don't understand. Because you missed the little dialogue scene in which Darth Vader turns to Luke and he says, help me out here, church, Luke, I am your father, okay? And, and, but you missed that because you were only watching the dialogue scenes. Plus, it's in another movie, the, the previous one. But th that's beside the point. <laughs> you see, it is important for us as followers of Christ that we learn to enjoy both the action and the dialogue, that we learn to enjoy the biblical principles, the stuff of how we are to live. And as a life group, we went through the book of Proverbs. See, that's the how-to type of stuff. And some of us, that's all we want. We just want the icing on the cake, so to speak. We want, we want the how-to. Just give me the how-to. I just want to learn to live for you, okay? I don't care about all the details. But I think Jesus wants you to be concerned about the details, church. All right? I'm not afraid to say that. I'll have to admit, I grew up in a church in which... That's about all the sermons were. It was all the detail stuff. And some of it was like on seminary level. And so I decided that at that point in the sermon, which ended up being most of it, I would take my nap. Um, but the, the truth is that there are churches, and it kind of repelled me that when they got into the theological and these deep truths, they treated it very academically almost so that you would be equipped. When you sat down with someone that disagreed with you, you would have all of your points, your 10 points, as far as why this or why that, that you could prove that you were right and they were wrong. And, and Jesus and, and Paul and the authors of the New Testament, when they get into theological, they don't do that. And Paul is not afraid to rebuke uh, heretics he challenged Alexander and Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2, and he says, you know, these people, they have, they have, they've wandered from the faith. They've actually shipwrecked their faith, and they're shipwrecking other people's faiths because they deny the resurrection. So, I mean, these theological truths are important, but how we teach them is crucial. And so we're going to be going through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is very theological. But here is what, and, and I'm going to take the entire sermon today to help us grasp the importance of knowledge. But how we then understand and grasp this knowledge is going to determine whether it changes your life or not. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he is talking to uh, people... <coughs> Excuse me, in verse 30 he says, even, <clears throat> excuse me, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. There were those that did not put their faith in him. And he goes, knowing that, he, it goes on and says, to the Jews who had believed him. It doesn't say who had believed in him. And that's crucial to understand. To those who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, it's amazing how Hollywood loves to quote this particular uh, verse of Scripture. 
in which, like in the movie Big Fat Liar, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, if you stop lying, then you'll be freed from the uh, consequences of lying. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. But I'm going to suggest to us, church, we need to know the truth. We need to grasp the, these truths and their implications. Let me just give you an example here. This is one of the truths that we're going to discover, and I'm only going to treat it superficially at this point. But the Bible in Romans 8, it talks about how the Holy Spirit, how we receive the Holy Spirit, and every believer has received the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells them. In other passages of Scripture, Paul tells them, like in the Corinthians, he says, don't you know that you have been purchased and you are not your own. You are the temple of God. That means that God lives in you and thereby possesses you. You are his very own special possession. And he says, because of this, how can you continue to live in sexual immorality? Is that really how you want to treat the temple of God? Now, I know I grew up in a very traditional type of church. And uh, we, had, we had to treat the sanctuary very respectfully. It was holy, almost to the point where you had to take your shoes off, type of holy. Uh, not really, but I, you, you couldn't raise your voice. You had to talk very quietly because it was holy. Now, regardless of your opinion on whether a sanctuary is holy or not, this is, however, who we are. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and once you know that truth, it will change you. For example, when I go to the bank and I make deposits and withdrawals, on once a month, I withdraw our grocery money. That's how we've chosen to purchase our groceries. We do it with cash. And it, it's a decent amount. I am there with the teller. She counts out the money. I get it, I count it one more time, I put it in the envelope, and I'm about to leave the bank, and I'm looking around, I got my stuff, and I want to make sure when I leave the bank, no one's following me, that when I go out into the parking lot, I don't see people waiting or anything, I get a little paranoid because I've got a decent amount of cash on me, and I don't want someone to put a gun in my face and say, give me all your money, you understand me? So I, and then if I put it in my pocket and continue on my errands, I'm like constantly looking around, okay? Does anybody know that I have this wad of cash in my pocket? And it's amazing how you go around your normal day-to-day -day living, if you've got a bunch of cash in your pocket, how you dialogue with people. Okay, you're a little bit too close here. <laughs> you know, maybe you don't say that. But you live your life very differently because you, you want to make sure that this money is kept safe until you get home and you can put it in the right place and so on. That is the deposit of the Spirit of God in your life. And when you really grasp this truth and its implications for how you are to live, and we're going to do that when we get to that chapter, it will revolutionize the way we live if we are used to living Christianity very casually. Because you are indwelt by God himself, the God that created the universe and has all power. He lives in you. So what we are going to do is we are going to go through the book of Romans. Not today. We're actually going to go through a passage, a prayer, 
of Paul's in Ephesians 1. So you can go to Ephesians 1. But as we go through Romans, we're going to want, I'm going to choose to, instead of going verse by verse from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end, we're going to go through it looking at the principles in Luke. For example, what does it mean to be under sin? What does it mean to be under law? And then that's going to give us a clue to understand what does it mean to be under grace. We're going to need to understand what is the wrath of God. We're going to need to understand the consequences of sin and its slavery and how do we get out of this. We're going to touch on that just a little bit today, but from a different perspective, you'll see. But we're going to, we need to understand these things. Now, the book of Romans is about the gospel. Paul never visited Rome before he wrote this letter that we're aware of. But he writes it in 57 AD with the intention of, while he's coming back from his third missionary journey, with the intention of one day visiting them. But before he visits them, and understand he knows a number of the people who actually live in Rome. He's rubbed shoulders with them. It's like the, the emperor kicks the Jews out, then he kicks the Christians out, and then they come back and they get kicked out again. And, and the truth is, these Christians in Rome have been around the Roman Empire, rubbed shoulders with Paul. If you read chapter 6, you see a, a, probably the longest list of names of Paul that Paul knows and says, greet this person and this person and this person, one after the other. But Paul's never visited Rome that we're aware of. And so you also realize that in the book of Romans, he doesn't address the problems the Christians of Rome face like he would the Corinthians in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in which those letters are almost all about their problems, a problem-filled church from the start. The book of Romans is not like that. And so as we go through this book of Romans, we're going to see some truths that we are called to know. Again, John 8, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are are going to, as we are looking at it, we have to resist the temptation of becoming overly academic with it because these truths are supposed to bring life into us. Now, I, I would venture to say a good way that you can tell whether you are really grasping these truths and and the uh their implications, or if you're just academically, intellectually grasping them, and that is how do you then dialogue about them? When you dialogue about them, do you seek to dialogue to show how much you know? Do you seek to dialogue about them to prove that you're right, the other person's wrong? I would venture to say that if that's the way that you treat these truths, you have grasped only the academic level. Now, I think we need to know them, we need to understand them, But Paul's purpose is far beyond that, and it is to understand the implications of these gospel truths. And what does it mean, for example, in Romans 6, that the old man has been crucified? And now I have been raised in newness of life. And I'm looking around, I mean, was it? Was I dead and I'm now alive? I don't feel that way. What does this mean? What are the implications then of how I live for Christ? So we're, we're goal, our goal is to go beyond the academic and to truly grasp 
these truths. So you're there with me then in Ephesians 1. Great. As you have turned to Ephesians 1, immediately turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And you're going to see this verse in verse 19 where he says that his desires that they grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then verse 19 and 2, know this love. And this word know is the Greek word uh, epignosis. It's, it's a full understanding or full knowledge of Christ's love. And to know this love that surpasses what? Knowledge. And so he invites us on this journey, or the Ephesians on this journey, to know something as best as they can. But remember, you will never plumb the depths of Christ's love for you, but you've got to do this. Because this will empower you to live radical Christian lives. To know, with the full knowledge, as best we can, this love of Christ. Now, I've Addressed this many times in previous sermons. I'm not going to do that now, but that would be an example. In his prayer, he wants them to know something. Over there, turn a few more pages to the right, Philippians chapter 1. And in verse 9, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in, what church? Knowledge and in depth of insight, which, which the Greek word there has a little bit more to do with perspective. I want you to know this love and get a right perspective on this, on your, on this love that Christ has put in you. But we have to know it. We have to get a right perspective and see it clearly and understand it. And then we'd be filled, it says in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now turn with me again to the right, Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at some of Paul's prayers here. And in Colossians 1 verse 9, he says, in view of the gospel coming to them, he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, understand Paul never really preached in Colossae, but Epaphras went there, who would come to Christ. Epaphras went there, shared the gospel, and a church began. So he, he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, and we have to step back and say, wait a second, Paul, is this, this seems like a little pattern of yours. You really like to pray for people to have knowledge, don't you? I mean, I, can I be honest with you? I don't pray that way. I'm being challenged to pray more this way. And I would venture to say that I pray differently because of how what I was exposed to. And the, the church that I grew up with was so knowledge, academic knowledge oriented that even though I love the truths in the scripture, I, I because I've worked with teens and other reasons, I, I, I want the application. And Jesus is saying, Mike, don't be afraid to teach the knowledge of the word. So for that reason, we had a theology class uh, last two, uh, two years ago, started two years ago, took a year to go through. But as a church, we need to plumb the depths of the riches of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and these gospel truths in the book of Romans. Paul, I believe, was a very godly man. He knew how to live 
for Jesus, radically live for Jesus. And yet all of these prayers, when he's praying, he, he says, his focus is, I want them to know the truth. And so I'm going to suggest to us, church, do not be afraid to know theological truths. And, it, and you're going to find that it is not just an understanding of what is the old man and the flesh and sin and what does it mean to be under sin or under law or under grace, but you're going to resist the temptation, I believe, to know these truths academically so that should I even give a test out, you'll do well. That will not, I will not give you a test, I promise that. But the ultimate test when you stand before the Father is how you lived for him. Because these, this knowledge will change the way you live. They will do that. So let's begin. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1. Like I told you at the beginning, I'm going to keep my promise. We are going to act, I'm actually going to preach from Romans chapter 1 for the rest of our time together. And he says here in verse 17, <clears throat> he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, like opened in order that you may know, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I don't know about you, I think Paul is really placing an emphasis on this word no, though I repeated it three times, uh, and it's not found in the Greek three times, it's implied three times. You understand what I'm saying? He wants us to know, he wants the Ephesians to know three things. And so what I'm going to do is to kind of prepare us for Romans. I want us to see, not only does Paul place a great under, or, or, or emphasis on knowing something, but here are three things that if you know these things, it will change the way you live for him. Number one, he says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. Now, this calling is not so much this calling on your life as Paul had the calling of apostleship. You have maybe a calling to serve or teach or give or whatever it might be. This calling, according to chapter 4, verse 4, and we're actually going to see that these three elements to know these three different things, each of those phrases are found elsewhere that Paul explains in his letter to the Ephesians. So if you were to turn over to Ephesians 4.4, 4, 4, let's look at 4.1. He says, as a, prisoner, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That calling was when he called you at the very beginning. Predestined us to be conformed to the image of, this is Romans 8, to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. 
in, in the context of Romans 8, this calling happens as, as a part of what has been called prevenient grace in which God calls the sinner. And every single one of you, before you came to Christ, you came to Christ by his grace, but you came to Christ because you received his calling. You, you felt the spirit of God doing something in you, convicting you of sin, showing you the attractiveness of the love of Christ and how desperately you needed his salvation because you were lost in sin. And that is the calling that we're talking about here. You were called out of darkness, Peter says, into his marvelous light. So he's not talking about this special call of apostleship or being a prophet or a teacher or a servant in various capacities, a Sunday school teacher. He's talking about this call that you received at your conversion, and you responded to it by his grace. This calling that you received he says, I want you to live worthy of that. You're going to need to look at that a little bit. It says in verse 4, he says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So here is my question. What is that hope? What is that hope? That he called you to. So he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to a hope. What is that hope? Is it simply the hope of heaven? For many people, the gospel is simply believe in Jesus. Your sins will be washed away. And woohoo, you get to go to heaven. That's my hope. One day. I'm not going to deny that. That is hope that I have. And scripture talks about that. That is not the hope, though, that he's talking about here. You've maybe heard uh, SSC's catchy phrase, you come to SSC and be a better you. One church I heard their, their catchphrase was, be a better version of yourself. Be a better version of yourself. Now, I am sure, because I know, or I got to meet some of these pastors, I, I know that their heart is truly, you're going to be a better version of yourself by Christ. But here truly is what we need to know and why I would hesitate in saying something like that. And I, I'm probably taking this motto out of context, and I'm not explaining it as they would, and I'm by no means wanting to be critical of that, but this phrase serves the purpose for what I want us to grasp here because we need to know this hope. You see, that hope is Christ in me, the hope of glory. He is doing something in me and he's transforming me more and more into and being conformed more and more into the, his image, the image of his son, Romans 8.29 says. Could I just change that? Be, become a better version of Christ. Not a better version than Christ was, but a better version of Christ than you were yesterday and last week and last year. See, our goal in life, this hope, is Christ being formed in me. Now, let me just show you how important this truth is. 
If I were to ask you, what is your goal in life? You may say, wait, wait a second, Pastor Mike. We're talking about hope here, not gold. And I would like to ask you, what is really the difference there? Is not a hope that you have a goal, something that you're wanting down the road, something that you have not acquired yet? That is your hope. That is a goal. So let me ask you again, what is your goal in life? You may say, well, you know, I'm about to graduate from college and I'm in business and my goal is one day I want to become a CEO. I want people to know who I am. But you see, I'm going to be a Christian doing this. And so along the way, I'm going to try and and tell people about Jesus. And, And here's what you find, though. Because your main goal is the CEO, and you're kind of bringing your Christianity along with you. What you find is the higher up you get in the rankings of this company, a Fortune 500 company is, you cannot speak about Jesus very much because that will keep you from the next promotion. So what actually happens is not that the next platform enables you to speak even more boldly about Christ. It causes you to speak more timidly and less about Christ. Because your, rep, your, your reputation, your next promotion is on the line here. Be quiet. But you begin to say, I'll be able to make a lot of money. And of course I'm going to contribute to the church, and really what you're saying is, I really want a bigger house, and I want four cars. There's, let's see, my wife, myself, my two kids. Uh, We need four cars, even though my two children are infants. We need four cars. Actually, I need a Hummer because I want to go four-wheeling, and I want a sports car because, you know, sports cars are really nice. And then, of course, the SUV. Um, And and my wife, she can have her her old minivan. That's fine, too. But, you know, so I'm going to need four cars, so I got to have a good income. And and of course, I'm going to use this all for ministry. (laughs) And and it's just so easy. Our goals in life are all about me. I want to become a better version of me. And Jesus is, he would like to put his arm around us and so graciously and tenderly say, but it's not about you. It is about me. Your entire life This thing called life that you are living, it is all about me. And and church, grasp that truth. As you wake up tomorrow morning, say to yourself and declare according to the word, it is all about Jesus. And it's about his grace and what he's going to do. And it it has so little to do with me, Mike Curtis, Marla Stevens, Julietta Curtis. Dave Rodriguez, Tim Miller, has so little to do with you. And it has everything to do with Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can I ask you, truly, at the end of this little, teeny, tiny space of time in all of eternity that you get to live, and you step into eternity... My question then would be to you, what did Christ do in you? Oh, wait, wait a second. I did become that CEO. I made so much money. I became famous. I was interviewed for the Fortune 500. I was on TV. Awesome. So how did God use your platform? I'm sorry, what's what's a platform, by the way? A platform, opportunities to speak about Christ? What? 
see, let me explain something to you here in the business world. And before you know it, this person's entire life, even though they're a Christian, was all about them and what they acquired and what they accomplished. Now, I believe that God is concerned about what we do accomplish. But that's not the starting point. You see, as Christ is formed in me, let's say love. Christ is forming his love in me. How are you going to know that? How are you going to know that God is forming Christ's love in Mike Curtis? Because I tell you or because you see it in the way I live? You see it in what I do day to day. See, that's how you're going to know whether Pastor Mike Curtis is loving or he's a jerk. That's how you're going to know. And I hope I'm not going to be a jerk. I hope I'm not a jerk today. <laughs> but I hope Christ is forming his love in me because Christ is being formed. That's my goal anyway. That's what I truly desire. That is my life ambition. Christ be formed in me. And if that happens, church, if Christ is formed in you, then he is going to give you opportunities to display Christ. Now, can I just say one of the things that I truly admire about Tim Tebow is not because he's out there trying to become famous, though he has become famous. Every platform he has is an opportunity to share Christ and to shine Christ. And I don't know about you. I think he's been doing a pretty decent job. The opportunities that God gives you to shine Christ like a city set on a hill. It starts with your character, his character in you. And it's revealed in the platforms and the opportunities every day that he gives you. That is the hope to which he has called you. This is your entire life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. You see, that's a truth. But when you really get that truth, it changes your perspective on how you live life. The next thing he says is he says, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I realize that there are many who are very excited as, about this verse, as I am, but just in a different way. And I don't mean to be too sarcastic here, but th this, this is infancy Christianity 001, if there's such a thing. <laughs> it's like baby step. And they, inheritance. Well, I, I'm, the inheritance that I would like to receive from Jesus is, oh, here we go. Here's my Christmas wish list. I really want all those cars, and I want people to admire me. I want people to look at me and say, wow, you are, like, awesome. But, of course, I'm going to be, sh I'm going to be showing them Jesus, and that's why they'll say that. And I want to I want to earn a lot of money. I want to live in a really nice, gated community. I, and, and we begin this, and we say, this is my inheritance. This is what God, this is why Jesus came to the earth and died for me. To give me this inheritance. Really. Can, can we just go back a few verses in chapter 1. And let's look at what he really means by this inheritance. 
Actually, in verses 13 and 14, he says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. So you've come to faith in Christ. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, <clears throat> the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And you're going to, he say, goes on and says, you're going to receive the, the full inheritance when you receive your full redemption as the sons and daughters of God. I mean, we have been redeemed at our new birth, but there is this little thing called sin that we still have not been able to completely conquer. Sin and death at the end of the age when Christ comes back will be placed under his feet. That is the last enemy sin and its consequences of death, at that point, you will be completely set free from this thing called sin and thereby receive your full redemption as the sons and daughters of God. Now, redemption is first introduced to us in the Old Testament back in Exodus 6, in which it's used this way, that God is saying to Moses, I'm going to redeem my people to be my special possession from slavery in Egypt. Redemption is always from slavery. In the Old Testament, the picture is slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians owned them. In the New, it is slavery to sin and how sin owns us before we come to Christ. And so we will receive our full redemption then. But in the meantime, you have a deposit called the Holy Spirit. And he is guaranteeing this inheritance. This inheritance is given to us in part now and, and completely in the age to come. This inheritance is what Ephesians 1 and the first part of 2, actually more, are about. Probably, you could say, all the way through chapter 3. This inheritance is everything that God has given to you, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. He gets in, he talks about the fact that you have been chosen in him before the creation of the world. Actually, if you were to look at verse 11, he says, in him... You have been chosen. That word chosen is a very interesting word. It's a verb with the, the, the backdrop of an inheritance, and you may not see that in its translation here. I think in the NASB it brings that out. You have been, in essence, you have been allotted an inheritance. It's used this way only once in Scripture. You have been allotted an inheritance. The Holy Spirit indwells you. This inheritance is everything that you have because you're in Christ. And actually, church, when we go through the book of Romans, we are going to discover the implications of this inheritance and what they are. This inheritance is not everything that I get. It has to do with God's grace and his strength and your, our justification and whatever that means and the newness of life and the power of the Spirit in us. And according to 2 Peter 1.3, everything we need for life and godliness. But my fear, though, 
is that for most in the church, but certainly nobody in this church, but in the church of Jesus, out there somewhere, this sounds like, this sounds so boring. I mean, everything we need for life and godliness. I mean, I, I, I like the riches part there. You know, I really like the idea of what I'm going to acquire in this life. I mean, that's what I'm living for, right? Man, wait. Jesus' church in so many levels, we've missed it. And I realize that much of it has to do with the, the prosperity gospel that's being proclaimed that runs contrary to God's word. It's all about feeding the flesh and what I want. And, and, and of course, you know, Jesus, he, he came to this earth and you, well, you're going to inherit the wealth of the wicked. And it does something to that desire of envy in our hearts. This is not, I mean, if Christ gives you great wealth, Praise God. I mean, people like John Wanamaker, people like um, Arthur Tappan, who was an abolitionist and owned a factory. My great-great-grandfather, I, I think I threw enough greats in there. My great-great-grandfather grew up in one of the rooms above his factory. His family lived there. He eventually became a pastor. It was named after him, Arthur Tappan Pearson, A.T. Pearson. Um, he was, so many wealthy men truly have given much and so much into the kingdom of God. And because they were willing to give so much into the kingdom, God just kept pouring finances in them and prospering their businesses because they were good stewards of what God had given them. They didn't say, wow, God, you're blessing me. Okay, I'll give a little bit here. I'll keep all the rest. This inheritance has everything to do with what I need for life and godliness so that Christ is formed in me. That is my hope that I've been called to. Now, as we go on, it says that we might know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And I need to be very quick with this. We need to wrap this up here. Know his incomparably great power for us who believe. As we go over to chapter 3, verse 20, part of his prayer, Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask according to his power that is at work within us. It is this power that he wants us to know, that power that is working in me. I'm not going to say it has nothing to do with laying hands on the sick and they're healed, but it has to do first with me being conformed to the image of his son. We keep coming back to that. Can I suggest that maybe in the book of Ephesians, and we'll see in the book of Romans, this truly is the goal of your life? It's not how high up you excel in the business ladder. What? Since you were in college, that was your life dream and ambition. Yeah, well, it just wasn't God's. Now, he may place you there, just like he placed Daniel. Daniel became the third highest ranking official in Babylon. 
for one day. End of chapter 5. He was raised up and he says, when he was made third in command, okay, there's the king, there is his co-regent, his son, uh, and Belteshazzar, and then there was Daniel. Lasted for one day. That night, all of Babylon got ransacked. The Persians, the Medes, they overran Babylon. So his day of glory lasted for one day. Now, eventually, though, he received a high rank. He, overse- he helped oversee 120 satraps, it says, whatever a satrap is. And he was in the running, or I don't even want to say in the running, King Darius, who was probably the presiding king of the Babylonian region while Cyrus the Persian was the warrior conquering the lands. He, Cyrus truly was the king. He was Persian. And he wanted to make Daniel the second-ranking king, right, official, right underneath him. And God truly honored Daniel. Do you know why? Because he could not be corrupted. Because he was a man of integrity. Because he so loved God, he was willing to die for him and was thrown in the lion's den for that reason. And God, just to delight himself and wow the Babylonian Empire or or the Persian Empire, rescued Daniel from that. When he was thrown in the lion's den, he came and sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that at the very end of the night, surely he is nothing but a pile of bones. And, And King Darius, he yells down into the pit, did your God save you? I'm like totally chilled all night, King Darius, and I'm fine. And he pulls him out, not a scratch on it. He was like 85 to 90 years old, and he was thrown into, and I don't know how far a drop that was. The lions couldn't jump out, so you know how deep it was. He was thrown down there, and his life was preserved. And Darius brags about the God of Daniel. And then the very reason why Daniel was given that platform was not so that he could be paraded around town and glorified and clapped and bowed down to. He was given that platform because by doing that, he made Christ known. He, God used him to completely impact King Nebuchadnezzar and now King Darius. Everywhere Daniel went and God lifted him up, God, God in essence could say, I trust this man because everywhere I put him and every level I raise him up to, he speaks nothing but me. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the inheritance that you have. This is the incomparably great power for every single one of you who believe that every time you are facing lusts and pride and selfish ambition, our God has placed, as you read in the next verse, verse 20, his resurrection power in you so that he can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, according to the power at work in you, which we just learned is the Holy Spirit that has sealed you. It's in you. It's available. It is there. It is not just like the resurrection power, as the NAV says. It is the resurrection power 
The very power that God exercised in raising his son from Je- raising his son Jesus from the dead, that is the power that is at work within you. And in Peter, it says, chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, he says that he was put to death in the body, but raised in newness of, raised to life by the Spirit. It is that Spirit that's in you. And he's stirring in you. And he is, is empowering you to live this life that God's called you to. Now, I, I want to conclude with this, and I'm already past my time, but I've, I've got to, I've, we have to look at this verse. Chapter 3, verse 10. And I, forgive me, this is going to take a few minutes, but I'm going to really try to keep it short as I can. But this is the culmination and, and the very reason why we're going to be looking and studying through Romans. Are you ready? What happens on this earth, and that includes all of you and the rest of the people on this earth, you are being watched by the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that. In the heavenly realms, those rulers and authorities are both angels and they are demons. Chapter 6, verse, what is it, 12? The battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the, the, author, the, ruler, the authorities, the rulers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are demons. So demons and angels, all of heaven, looking on to what you do and how you live your life. And what is God going to do? And, and here's what they know that even many Christians do not. The problem of sin goes so deep into the fabric of humanity, and it so corrupts the way they think and the way they live, the way they believe everything about them, and in fact, sin has impacted the entire universe. Look at that in Romans Romans 8. Everything, sin, sin has wreaked havoc throughout God's created universe. What is God to do? Some would say, well, you know what? Just wave his little spiritual wand and I just forgive all of you. Come on to heaven, yeah. But see, the problem of sin is so much greater than that. It's not just an issue of, well, you know what? I have this fancy, I just want to forgive everybody, so you're forgiven. Because sin has so offended the holiness of God and infiltrated every aspect of God's creation, it is a complex issue. It truly is. And a simple answer will just forgive everybody. That's not how this can work. God does have a solution. Romans is the solution. And The problem is complex, and so the answer is going to be complex. Well, that answer is the gospel. Now, truly, believing in Jesus so that my sins are forgiven and I will live with him forever in eternal life, something I actually possess now, that is the gospel right there. Now, I didn't get into the cross and the resurrection. Those are elements. But I actually didn't get into a lot of things. So uh, when we go through the book of Romans, for you to 
go out and evangelize, you don't have to bring the book of Romans to you and say, I'd like to share Christ with you and start with chapter 1, verse 1, and read through it. You don't have to do that. You can truly summarize the points. But my, my, my point here is that the gospel is such a deep, incredibly rich, yet complex answer to the complex and deep-rooted issue of sin. God has this plan. And it says here in chapter 3, verse 10, it says his intent, and he just spoke about it in verse 9 about the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to the saints through his holy apostles and prophets. This is the gospel. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, other verses. It gives us this glimpse of, of what this gospel is about, but it's veiled. And now in the, in, after Christ, it's completely revealed. Christ, the hope of glory, the cross, the resurrection, and the profound implications of these truths. And now he says, why does he do this? Why now is he revealing the gospel in this age? And he says his intent was that now, through the church, through you, the manifold wisdom of God, that is, the gospel worked out through humanity. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known, should be displayed, if you will, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And I'm just going to stop there. We are, and I, I've called this before, the drama of grace. This thing that we are a part of, this history of mankind, if you will, and as God displays his glory through the gospel, Lost, totally in sin. The rules and authorities, they understand the complexity, at least to some degree, of this issue of sin. They're, the demons, they're probably wondering, hmm, I wonder how God is going to solve this one. Man, we really messed up his creation, high-fiving one another. Yes! The angels, they think, man, God's got an ace up his sleeve. I know he does. I know he's got a plan. He wouldn't have created man if he didn't. What is that plan? You know, we've heard, and even the angels, it says, longed to look in, before Christ, longed to look into these truths about the coming Christ. Even the angels did not fully understand the gospel before it was revealed in Christ. Christ comes doing miracles, teaching truths that set people free. And the demons, oh yeah, but put him to death, crucified on the cross. High fives going around as they are gathered around and stirring up the people as they are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And the, devil, the demons are saying, yes, we are winning. We've got this thing. We will overcome and dethrone God himself. Man. Boy, was their plan spoiled three days later. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened because death could not keep him down. Couldn't do it. I'm sure the demons who were, did everything they could, did, man, they were just blown out of the water, if I can word it that way. And Christ was raised from the dead. And now the gospel begins to be proclaimed. And the demons are getting a little hot under the collar. One, again, I'm saying demons and angels because, again, the display of God's grace through the gospel is what is on display here. This is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms viewing this. 
It was God's intention for this to happen and for all of the hosts of heaven to stand in wonder with a sense of defeat. And the demons are starting to get a little hot under the collar. Wait a second. These guys, they're doing miracles, man. 3,000. We, we lost 3,000 on the day of Pentecost? Really? And I'm sure Satan chewed them up. What were you guys thinking? Why weren't you speaking lies like I told you to? Oh, but Satan, we really tried. And you can almost imagine this playing out. And then the angels high-fiving. Yes! The angels are rejoicing, man. They're having daily parties in heaven when a sinner repents and comes to Christ. Luke 15 tells us this. And it is like a constant, continuous party in heaven. And the demons are thinking, man, we're blowing this. We're like way behind here. What are we going to do? Now, I, th I think we still have time, unless Jesus pulls a fast one and comes back sooner than we anticipate. But we still have time. Let's regroup. And before you know it, the church gets so involved in putting out heretical fires, it seems that's all they care about. Origin in 225 writes, you know what? In our day, we do still hear of prophecies and miracles and people being raised from the dead and tongues, but they only happen amongst the most godly. And apparently, they weren't happening where Origin lived in Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt. And the power of the Holy Spirit begins to quiet down and theologians begin to rationalize. Why isn't the Spirit of God moving? Why isn't God doing what he did centuries ago after Christ and, and for the first like 200 or 150 years? What's going on? We know what the problem is. It's not our fault. God has just sovereignly chosen to withdraw these gifts of the Spirit. And it plummets the church. And I'm going to word it this way purposely. It plummets the church into centuries long, what they call the Dark Ages. And I can only imagine the demons. Yes! We are whispering in the ears of these religious leaders and they're buying everything that we speak to. And before you know it, they're not going to worship Jesus anymore. They're just going to worship his mom. And wow, the church is being led astray more and more. And then God says, oh, yeah, to the demons in essence, you really think you got this? I'm going to raise up for me a Wycliffe and a Luther and a Calvin and a Zwingli. And before you know it, a, a Wesley Brothers, a team. I'm going to raise up a, a Jonathan Edwards and a, and a Finney. And you ain't seen nothing yet. And before you know it, with the Reformation on, we see this acceleration of the gospel spreading throughout the earth. And we come to our generation, church. And my question to you is, what is God seeing now? What are the angels? Are they rejoicing or are they wondering, uh-oh, wait a minute, what is going to happen now? Because I believe that if this generation responds to the grace of God and his drama as he is unfolding the gospel in our day, that God would invite us into seeing as it, as it displays for us in Romans 11, at the end of the chapter, the gospel so that all nations might believe. History 
is marching forward with that perspective, with that goal in mind. Might that happen in our generation? Or will our generation be just another generation that falls asleep at the wheel? God is doing something in the hearts of his believers, in your hearts and mine. And he's saying, look with me, see this hope, see this inheritance, see this power. It's incomparably great, and it's at work within you by my spirit. Are you ready? I want you to be a part of this awesome drama of the display of my grace. But I need you to let Christ form in you. And when that happens, he will display himself through you. This is our purpose, church. Can you stand with me? I just shared with you this morning a lot of facts, a lot of truths, but I hope with all my heart, the implications of these truths as well. How will you respond? It can either be a huge yawn for you, in which case we are in danger as a generation of missing this opportunity of seeing Christ return and to see all nations believe. My question is, what has been your goal in life? What are you going to do with these truths? Will you let them transform your ambitions and the very reason why you believe you're here? Or will we just continue to let time go on and say, okay, well, I've just got one life to live. I'm going to live it for me. Father, I, God, let your holy fear grip your church again. Father, forgive us when we have so roughshod and read over so much, even of Romans. Wanting to get to the good stuff in chapter 12 and on. And we have truly missed the full implications of the gospel. Father, I pray that as we go through Romans, change us. Change us, God. Change me. That we would become, as a result, that generation that sees the gospel upend every nation. Not just hundreds or thousands, but millions and even billions to Christ. Father, empower us then to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Apart from your grace, we are helpless. Change me, God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, I'm going to encourage you, if you have opportunity, keep reading through the book of Romans. Get ahead on this. Um, have an awesome weekend, and we'll look forward to seeing you Wednesday. God bless. Don't forget, Tuesday morning prayer. Okay, if you can make...